Welcome to this special edition of the Abundant Yoga Teacher Podcast. My name is Amy McDonald. In this special series, I'm sharing with you 12 speakers from the Business of Yoga hey, Speaker folks, Series. Amy I really McDonald hope you enjoy their wisdom. The Business of Yoga Speaker Series. I'm really excited about our guest for today, Day Shilkret, who is currently in the Oakland Hills, did you say? Day? Yes, in the Oakland Hills overlooking San Francisco and the Marin Headlands. Very nice. Uh, it's, yeah. it's been a while since I've spent time in that part of the world and I must go back and hang out. So folks, I, um, I, I'm going to give you the formal introduction today and read his bio for you because it's impressive. And also, um, I think you know, Dave brings a really different, um, uh, I was going to say skill set, but it's more than that. Let's just say that for now to the, to the lineup for our series. And I'm sure we're going to have a great, great conversation. So let me read out your formal bio. Today is internationally known for morning altars and has inspired tens of thousands of people of all ages across the globe to renew their relationship to nature, creativity and the impermanence and impermanence with the ritual and practice of earth art. He's the author of Morning Altars, a seven step practice to nourish your spirit through nature, art and ritual. And he's been touring with that book since October 2018. Morning Altars has been featured in BuzzFeed, Vice. Spirituality and Health Magazine and many others and has over, I love this, 85,000 followers on Instagram and Facebook. This is super cool. Large-scale morning alternates, installations and workshops have been featured at Google, Wonderlust, Wisdom 2.0 Conference, Treefoot Music Festival, Bionese Conference, the Andy Warhol Preserve, Beloved Festival, the Culture Conference, Symbiosis Festival, Lightning in a Bottle Festival, Red Rock Arts Festival, you <laughs> uh, And also live on stage with Earth, uh, sorry, East Forest at the legendary Old Church Music Hall. I'd say it was an impressive bio. I mean, I wasn't kidding. <laughs> it's actually, I heard you read it and I realized I have to update it because it's actually, it's, there's a lot more to add to it. <laughs> well, can we, uh, great, and let's unpick those as we go. But for people who don't know you yet, tell us, mm -hmm. about, tell us about what earth altars are because I must admit, I sure. didn't imagine what they are might be what, when I first saw that written, explain to us, mm -hmm. what, what is it that we're talking about? Sure. I mean, you know, for any of, you, any of the people listening, if they have children, perhaps your kids are already doing it. Um, you know, it's basically as simple as going on a wander wherever you are. Let's say it's the beach and finding some shells and some crab shells and some seaweed. And it's just sitting down and making something beautiful, maybe symmetrical maybe not with it and letting it go and letting it be ephemeral and impermanent. Um, I mean, that's the basic simplicity of it is that it's something very inherent. Kids want to do it all the time. I think adults want to do it all the time. A lot of adults want to do it if they weren't so um, overwhelmed and busy and stressed and yeah. kind of on this industrial workhorse conveyor belt. Yes. Um, but really, it's, it's as simple as making beauty with the place that you are. And it's a collaboration with place. It's a collaboration with nature. Um, and so, um, you know, I stand on the shoulders both of indigenous communities all around the world yes. um, for thousands of years. Um, villages in countries probably such as your own, but definitely mine. Yeah. 
um, have, have employed earth art as a way to fill in the blank, uh, welcome newborns, grieve the dead, pray for peace, pray for rain, celebrate victories. Um, I mean, you know, whatever. I mean, earth art has been used as a way to metabolize grief. It's been a, a, used as a way to celebrate accomplishments. It's been used as a way to feed the spirit of nature and place. And so, um, so that's one of the shoulders I stand on. And then the other shoulder that I'm standing on is um, uh, the 1960s and 70s. There was an off-break of artists who were seeing that museums were basically trying to hold all of the art um, around the world, in America and in Europe. And there was a, a major movement that kind of coincided with the, um, with the feminist movement and with the environmentalist movement in the 1960s, where artists basically were saying, we're not going to give our art to museums to preserve it. Our art belongs in nature, where it belongs to everyone and no one at the same time. And so um, I'm standing on the sh shoulders of people such as Robert Long and Andy Goldsworthy and other artists who are equally as obsessed with change and with the real tutor and teacher of change, which is nature. nature. Yeah. So I'm standing on both of those shoulders with this work. I love it. And uh, folks, you've got to go and you know, follow Day Everywhere and get his book and we'll talk about that in a moment. But I, if if you're still wondering, well, don't still don't quite get it. I guess for me, when I look at them, there's an element of sort of um, like mandala. There's a lot of symmetry in the examples I looked at on your website, and also I know I've been at festivals where people make yantras out of flowers and things like that. So that so and they're quite large. Some of them, like the, these. Yeah, I've done ones that have been thirty feet big. Yeah. Uh, which is a lot of material. I mean, look, if someone, I would say if someone's still like, what's earth art, go to my Instagram, you'll yeah. see, you'll get an example of what it is. It's, it's amazing what you can do with leaves and bark and berries and bone. Yes. It's, it's really remarkable. And, but more importantly, it is, um, you know, I love my art. Um, I think that what, you know, what I'm able to accomplish is, is something that I find to be very beautiful. And thankfully a lot of other people do too, but Morning Altars is also an international movement. Mm. And just this week, I mean, it's just, you know, I was on a ski vacation this weekend and I was just, I had to, on the mountain, I had to show people like the emails and Instagram messages I was receiving because people are, are taking what I did in my... Are we still here? Yeah, yeah we're all good. Um, people around the world are inspired by what I wrote about in the book and are going out with their kids, with their partners, with their parent, with their elderly parents, and they're making earth altars around the world. This week, I got one from Poland. I got one from per Portugal. I got one from Peru. I got one from um, Iran this weekend. Okay. And all it is is people showing me beautiful pieces of earth art that they've made for different purposes. One of them that I got today was um, someone took a workshop with me in Portland, Oregon, and they learned how to do this. And then their best friend was getting divorced 
Um, and so she took her best friend out for a wander in their neighborhood. They collected a bunch of, of nature's treasures and they went and made a, a morning altar together to honor her divorce. Wow. And, um, and then her friend photographed it and she got it printed up and now it's hanging in the woman's house wow. as a reminder that this is what I got today as an email, as a reminder for what she is letting go of. And as a reminder of her courage and strength. Uh, super beautiful. And I like, and, how, and is that, I guess I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I'm not an, I'm not an artist other than, you know, inherently humans have an artistic, you know, drive, I guess, but, uh, from your perspective, that taking something that is in, by its very nature impermanent and then capturing it in that way, I mean, is that, how do you feel about that as part of the... Well, I happen to have written a whole chapter about it in my book. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's chapter, chapter six of my book is, is basically, it's a wondering after the question, what's the, po what's the intention yeah. of photographing and sharing it? Um, when I first started to do this, uh, I mean, I really first started um, when I was five years old and I was basically the, a little boy after rainstorms and I would run out on the driveway and I would save little worms that were displaced and I would help them get back into the earth and, and I would decorate each wormhole with little sticks and flowers and berries as a little kid. Um, and then somehow or other in my teens and twenties, I, I still was very um, interested in being outside and, be, and creating art. That was my interest. Um, and it wasn't until I had a major breakup in a relationship, um, about six years ago that I used, um, earth art as a way to process my grief wow. and as a way to move through the heaviness and burden of the grief from that breakup. Yeah, yeah. And it actually was the only thing that was helping me at the time. I didn't want to do yoga. I didn't want to meditate. I really only could walk my dog at the time. And along the way, as I was sad, you know, we would, I would find this black crow feather or this cluster of elderberries or whatnot. And I would sit under a tree and I would just arrange them. And that's the only kind of, that's the only way I had room in my life to do anything creative. And at the end of making each one every morning, um, I felt lighter. I felt more myself. I felt like I belonged again to the world. I felt like my heart was coming back together again. Mm. And, um, and so I, I then would just photograph each one of them and I'd send them to my friends just as a way to have them know that I'm coming back alive again. And, um, and then I would photograph them and send them a little, a little prayer which are a little, a little gift of words with each one. And that was really successful. And then I started to do that and post them on Instagram. And then it just became this whole other thing where people around the world were inspired to do it themselves and to share with me the reasons that they were making them. And, and so now it's become this, this real resource for people and a real ritual for people who, um, who want to feel more connected to nature, who want another mindfulness practice, mm. 
who want to feel like they can have a creative expression every day, but are too scared maybe to draw or paint, you know? And, um, and so these are all ways that people feel more connected and that they could slow down in their lives and that they could feel like they belong again. And nature really helps with that. And so this is a really impactful way for people to just play with things right outside their front door. I love it. Uh, uh, before we started the recording, folks, I was saying today that I was talking about him on my walk with my walking buddy yesterday, and, and we happened to be gardening nerds, the two of us. And the reflection I had when I first was looking at your work was, I've always been a gardener. I have a big garden. I like to grow things. I, you know, I, I live in the bush. But, and as much as that fills me up and, and I love it, it always still has a sense of I need to do that. I should, this, this, that task needs doing and this thing needs. And the idea of being in my nature environment here with more of that energy of play and creativity for no other purpose than cr- play and creativity kind of blew my mind yesterday. I suddenly realized, wow, my nature connection has still actually been about, it's been absolutely tasked oriented yeah. what you're talking yeah. about has to it snaps me out of that space good and it's also it's very it's very much the wisdom of children which is coming from a wonder mindset yes. you know as as adults especially as adults in this modern world we've become very weak in wonder yeah, yeah. and wonder is like a muscle um and if you don't exercise it if you don't exercise it daily it atrophies and that's why children are very strong with, with wonder and awe. They're very, they, they become alive when, when you, know, you bring them to a new place or they eat a new food or they see something different for the first time. I mean, it was remarkable. I was with children this weekend and, and one of the kids um, was experiencing snow and icicles for the first time. Wow. And... And you get, and that's why adults love kids so much. One of the reasons is because we get to live through their experience. Mm. Um, but we don't. But that's, <laughs> but that doesn't have to be just the way. I mean, that we live through their experience because they are so strong in wonder. But we need to be strong in wonder too. Mm. And especially nowadays, with so much trouble on this planet and so much stress and so much addiction to certainty. Mm. Um, we have become, we've relinquished our capacity to, to wonder and to be in awe at the, at the most simplest and mundane things. We almost have gotten used to them, um, unfortunately. And so when we look at a tree or look at a flower or look at a pine cone, you know, we don't, we don't marvel at it anymore. And it's because we're on a timeline and we've got so many things to do and, you know, we've got these technologies that pull us out of the present moment. And we're, we're in what I would call in the book, I call it um, destination addiction. Yeah. We're just addicted to going to the place we think we should go to. Yeah. And we don't spend a lot of time wandering and wondering in the places that we are. Yeah. But when you do that, when you allow yourself to wander and wonder, it's as if the entire place starts to sing to you. It, it's a chorus. It's an orchestra of, of magic and mystery and relationships and, and color and texture. And, and suddenly the, your neighborhood or your backyard that you thought you knew or 
that you thought was like whatever suddenly becomes a whole world. And, and usually the consequence of that is a lot of joy for people. The, the thing that comes up for me as well when you're talking about that is that that, what, that wonder also sparks a sense of custodianship. Like, and I think mm-hmm. that, that may also be something that we're missing. If I'm not connected, if I don't exactly. have wonder to my immediate environment, how like I have some role in its stewardship or, or on the yoga mat, if I'm, not, if I'm not present for the wonder of my body, how can I have great custodianship and take care of it and avoid injury or these greater issues that, that we're facing right now without the spark of wonder as the starting point, it's almost like there's that disconnect. It's not my job or I don't even notice that something needs doing. Yeah. You know, the, the, there's a word that's coming to mind when you say that. Um, but I'll, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to reveal it in a minute, but I want to, I want to kind of set it up first. (laughs) There's, there's a word which is connected to your, the word you're using custodian, um, ship or, uh, taking responsibility or, maintenance or um you know really the word that i'm thinking of is the word like you know holding like you're holding you're holding something right you're you're able to take responsibility for it you're able to hold it but there's a word that is even more enhances that word which is the word behold when you behold something it's your willingness to see it as if it is the first time you're seeing it. You're beholding it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's not just taking responsibility, although that's in there too. You're holding it. But when you put that be in front of it, like betwixt or between or bewitched, or you're enhancing the holding. Mm-hmm. You're enhancing the word. And so, yes, you're not just taking responsibility for it. You're actually taking responsibility for it because you're in love with it. Yes. Because you're in relationship with it. Yes. Right. Because you care about it and maybe it cares about you too. And so when I was writing this book, um, you know, I have a New York city publisher and uh, my editor um, who's changed a lot in working on this book. But when she first started working on it about three weeks before we went to print, she I got a very odd phone call that was something along the lines of, you know, um, I've been thinking a lot about it and I know that you've written the book um, uh, from using she and her to refer to nature, trees and land and what she goes, but I don't think it works. So can you just go through the whole book and, and replace that with it? it? And I was a little taken back because, you know, the whole book and this whole practice is about relationships. It's about learning how to be in relationship, both with the places that you are and with your own self. And, um, and so I tried, I tried for 10 minutes (laughs) and 10 minutes in, I said, absolutely not. This is, this is insane. I'm not going to objectify objectify nature um and so uh and so i then we found a compromise where in the in the introduction i spoke to my reader and i said hey you know um sometimes we have a way of objectifying things and this whole book is about 
nature and relationships. And so I'm going to be using the word she and her in reference to um, plants and flowers and trees and landscape. And I said, I'm using that because, um, because this is our limited languages way of helping you bring her alive again in your, in your language, through your language. Mm. Um, because this whole thing boils down to relationships mm. and, um, and how, you know, really people for thousands of years would belong. Here's another B word, belong to the places that they lived. And it would be very hard to distinguish a people from the place. Their people's, indigenous people's languages often are said, the cadence of their languages are often said to resemble the landscape of the land. The, the, patterning on in, on many indigenous indigenous people's clothing represent the landscapes peaks and valleys yeah. um you know it's the, the 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 there's so much integration between the people and the place and um and in for us as modern people uh we often have a very disconnected relationship with the places that we live yes and the consequence of that is we often have a very disconnected relationship to our own self and to our communities. Mm. And so the way back in, and this is p- people ranging from Richard Louvre, who wrote the book, The Last Child Left Inside, to, um, to you know, Joanna Macy. Um, the, all of these people are speaking about the way back to ourself and the way back to community is through strengthening our relationship to the places that we live. Yeah. And wonder and awe and art and prayer and ritual are all ways to, to build a relationship with the places that we live. Something else I wonder about too is um, yesterday, you know, a couple of days ago I was outside and walking from one part of the garden to another and there was this beautiful uh, cockatoo feather just on the on the ground and and i also think that what the the work that you're doing in 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 searching out and and going on you know looking to find the pieces to make the art with for me it also brings up gratitude like how can you not see something like that that gift of nature right there Mm -hmm. and have that moment of oh you know Mm -hmm. i feel so fortunate and aren't i lucky to have to be here right now Mm -hmm. is gratitude part of do you talk about that when you're when you're sharing this work with people? Sure, very much so. I mean, uh, I, well, first, before even speaking about gratitude, you know, um, in the book, in the first in chapter one, when I talk about the wandering and wandering, um, I have a variety of rules that I give my reader um, because I think we have this assumption that because I see it, it's mine, um, or ah. because it's there, I can take it. Oh, that's the history of my country. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go on. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, I think there's this mindset of like, oh, I want it. So I get it. Yeah. And, um, and I think that it's too easy, especially in spiritual communities to immediately go to gratitude, which is like, oh, I found this. Oh, I'm so right. grateful. Yes, you're right. Yeah. I'm so grateful because it's, I found this or I have this or it's mine. Right. Yes. 
And, and in, um, I, I have these rules set out. For instance, one of the rules is ask before you take. That's a simple rule, yeah. right? Ask permission. And I often get from people, especially city people, like, well, why would I ask a tree? You know, why would I ask a flower to take it? And this is the way of unraveling ourselves from this mindset that says that these are inanimate objects and back into the relationship. Another thing is give before you take. That's another rule. Mm. What would I give a plant? You know, mm. why, would I give any, why would I give anything to a plant? I would only give something to another human. You know, so, but of course the kids are the ones that like immediately know the, the answers to these things. Like, what would you give a plant? You know, I had a, a, a last workshop I was doing, I had a, a child there and the most beautiful response that day was the little girl said, I would sing the tree a song, you know, and, and she said, I would sing the tree a song because the tree has been singing to me already. That's what she said. You know, and so there, and then there's, there's other people that would say water or, you know, whatever. I mean, you can give anything that you want, but, um, but this idea of, of a reciprocal relationship, right? Like giving before you take. And so it's like with any, any, um, gifting relationships, any reciprocal relationships, for instance, you said, I've been on the road with my book tour for so long. So that means I've, I've had a lot of hosts. I've been a guest to a lot of people. If you're on my newsletter, I did a, a statistic newsletter at the, at the beginning of the year. I think I've been to, I've been in like, you know, over 50 something beds in the last, you know, four months. And I've been to, you know, 17 cities and, um, and it's with any, so I've experienced a lot of, of hosting. And I've been a guest many times. I'm currently one right now in this house. Mm. And there's a reciprocal relationship that's involved in the guesting hosting relationships, which is at the core of it is gratitude, right? Like I'm, I'm very grateful to be here right now. It's raining outside. I'm very grateful to have this warm home to be in, to have a bed, to have the generosity of my host. But gratitude's not enough. It's not. It's the basis, but it's, it's an impetus. And so the gratitude is, yes, I'm feeling grateful, but the question is, what does that inspire inside of me to give back, right? So I'm, I'm receiving something, but I can't just keep it. I've got to give it back. That's how gifts move. Gifts are actually meant to move in the world. They're not meant to just be received. And that's the fallacy of gratitude is that it's it, fine. You're grateful. But the question is, what are you doing with it? Mm. How are you giving it back? You got to keep the thing moving. And that's what gives humans a lot of purpose or has ha given humans a lot of purpose is you realize, oh my God, I'm, I'm receiving so much right now. I want to give back. Mm. How do I give back? You know, and then you, and in my practice, it's through beauty and not just beauty. It's through a, the approach. So in my book, I say every step of this practice is all about beauty making. And it's not just about making something with your hands, although that's part of it. It's also speaking beautifully. It's also walking beautifully. It's also thinking beautifully. It's, it's a beauty making practice, but it's the only one step of it is actually in the making of the art. The whole thing is art, you know? And so that, that's, there's a great quote by uh, a shaman named Martin Prechtel 
um, who lives in New Mexico. And he says, it's not just enough um, to make art. We have to, li- we have to live artfully. And that's this practice is that, and that's gratitude, really. It's not a feeling, it's a practice. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> as soon as we finish, I'm going to go rewatch this and uh, to do some journaling. <laughs> but uh, recognizing yeah. that this is not just for me, <laughs> let me ask you some other questions. So sure. um, I want to talk about, uh, how, how are we going for time? Okay, so let's do this first. Morning altars. Why is this a practice for the morning and why? It, it, the name came to me because it was a, a, pra- a morning practice. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, uh, for me, it was a direct relationship with walking my dog in the morning, first thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and having that, that beautiful relationship with a new day. And the word altars is a very interesting word um, that came to me because I realized that I'm not just making art, although I am. Um, I'm also, this is a devotional practice. Mm. And so um, interestingly enough, the word, the etymology of the word altar, the root of the word, literally in the Proto-Indo-European, it literally means to raise up, to take something and raise it higher. I mean, the word is probably religiously referring to God, but doesn't have to. And so if you remember the story I told you about my breakup, that's what I was doing with my grief is I was taking this burden, some grief, and I was out through the creative practice of art. I was raising that grief up and, and allowing it to feel lighter and transmuting it and transforming the grief. And so the word morning altars, I didn't even think about it. It's just very naturally how I started to refer to my art um, because it was a morning practice and it was very much about making a meal for, from the seen to the unseen is how I saw it. Um, I was making a, it felt like I was making this beautiful altar or this dish, this gorgeous feast and, um, and raising it up or offering it up, offering it out. And so the name morning altars came from that. One of the, in one of the earlier interviews in this series, we talked to a yoga teacher who does a lot of archetype work and she was talking about how, archetypes resonate with people because they cut across cultures. doesn't matter who you are. You can identify with that story or with that character. And I also wonder um, the work that you're doing. I mean, I know the uh, indigenous people here, there's lots of, this is part of their practice. The connection to country is, you know, paramount. Um, But I imagine that as you're traveling and showing and working, showing your art and working with different people, sharing, you would see that people are identifying in a deep way because of their cultural background. I imagine this is like archetype work. It cuts through different belief systems and different um, religions, thought patterns. Yeah, I would call, I would, I like, um, there's a man by the name of Dr. Martin Shaw and he uses a phrase, myth-mindedness. Yes. And I like that. Yes. Um, he, he refers to 
um, being of a myth mind. And to me, if you want to try and understand what that means, it probably sits in opposition to what I would call an industrial mind. And the industrial mind is, is under that mindset, I would refer to like that addiction, that um, destination addiction that I was yeah. referring to, the, the uh, addiction to certainty that I was yeah. referring to, um, the need to be in control. Um, the need to uh, know what is happening, what's what things are, and the need for um, permanence, mm. Mm. right? The need for things to be everlasting, mm. which my art is not, right? Mm. And um, and so you know, myth mindedness in a way is weaving yourself back into a much larger story than you. Right, it's not I centric. It's 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 you realize that you're in, you're playing out a much bigger story that you're a part of, mm. and so it's very humbling to realize that you know this is the world's not centered on you. <laughs> Thank God, <laughs> um, right? And and so there, but but the world's not centered on you. But you, everyone here is tasked and entrusted to play a certain part of the story. And so, um, and that, that's an easy segue into a conversation on purpose, you know, and ritual. Mm. And the, the interesting, this is an interesting word, the word ritual. Mm. You know, we use that word a lot, but do you really know what it means? You know, to look at, if, you, if you've noticed by now, I'm, I'm, I, I think to speak, to know a language is to not just know the surface of the language, but to know the root of the language in the same way that to know a plant is to not just know what you see, but to see the unseen too, yes. right? Yep. So the root of a word helps to tell you the journey the word's been on because it's come from certain places and it's changed yeah. and through time and people have used it differently. So we use this word ritual, but, the, but it comes from a certain culture probably around the area of India and Europe. Yep. And the word actually, the Proto-Indo-European root of the word means rhythm. Hmm. So ritual means really means rhythm. Hmm. When we do ritual in some way, we are, we have to listen because there's already music that's happening. There's already a, there's already a beat there's already a drum beat that's happening, right? And so we have to start to listen to our place in the music because there's already a, there's already a beat that's happening right now that we're not in control of. It's, it's, you can even beautifully call it the heartbeat of life. Let's just say that. Mm -hmm. There's a beat that's happening in life. And, and so ritual helps us find the beat again. Mm. And so you can do ritual, you know, on the equinoxes and the solstices to find your place in the rhythm of the year mm. again, right? Mm -hmm. You can do rituals around your birthday time or to find your place in the, in the rhythm of your own life. You can do rituals every new moon or full moon, right? You can, I mean, you can do a ritual every morning and every night before you go to bed. I mean, there's no rule as to when to do it but it's important to know why. And the why is 
because we are dancers in life. And we have to listen to the beat, the one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four of the music. And when we can hear that, the ritual is our way to dance back into it. And then we can find our purpose again in the dance. And ritual helps us do that. Now, keep in mind, we are, we are all, most of us that are listening to this, if not all of us, are modern human beings, which means we are ritualless, hmm. mostly, as modern humans. We have very, very thin and, and frayed relationship with ritual in this modern culture. So we have to really learn, again, what does it mean? You know, what does it mean to have a rhythm? What does it mean to be in relationship with something bigger than ourselves, that myth-mindedness? Yeah. And so, and so, you know, we have to look at the poverty of our time. Most of us don't have real ritual to root into and find ourselves, find our sense of belonging again. And that doesn't mean that we can't have it. So, you know, my, one, I'm just one voice of many, thankfully, and my way is to say that earth altars are a way to find that rhythm again, just in, the, in your day, you know, just to find your rhythm in your day. And, or, or if you have a breakup or you move or you get a job or you lose a job or you have a baby or your father dies, or this is a milestone maker. Mm. You may create a little earth altar you wander around your neighborhood you collect leaves and berries and sticks and you make something small to mark a moment so that you can not lose your place not lose the cadence in the rhythm because as you know things move very quickly and before you know it you know february is over and before you know it i mean actually tomorrow is the 8 year anniversary of my father's death Mm. And so how did eight years happen? Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea how that happened, but I've got to mark the time. Mm. I have to mark the moment. And that's what ritual is for. Beautiful. And I, uh, this is probably the thing that comes to mind for me, listening to you speak is how in, you know, in for people who are drawn to yoga or new age practices or whatever, sometimes what we, what can perhaps start as ritual turns into habit, which is different from ritual. And mm -hmm. then there comes this whole sense of obligation or um, achievement with that mm -hmm. habit, um, which I wonder if part of, because of its very nature, the morning altar practice helps us stay back in the ritual space because I know for me, okay, I'm going to, I must remember this morning, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to chant the Hanuman Chalisa, I'm going to light the stick of insects and, and the incense, and then I can tick that off and I can move on. Then I can go to my inbox and then I can go to my, <laughs> which it just becomes another thing, another reminder yeah. from my phone, which is a mm -hmm. habit and, and loses all of the intrinsic value that I was my intention in the first place. But what you're, the impermanence of your practice and the, requirement to actually be present and go through these rules and be be mindful as you collect your items helps it to stay in the it helps it to to hold that energy of ritual and not just become another thing that i need to tick off my list yeah i mean i think 
I think a lot of that is about intention. Yeah. Um, how are you, how are you bringing yourself to the practice? Yeah. And so it's very much about approach. Um, you know, there are two words that are coming to mind right now that I wrote about in the book. And, and one of them is the word conduct. And the other word is the word conduit. And they are very, very, they're siblings as words, mm. conduct and conduit. And so the wondering is, the question I'll po- pose for your audience right now is, um, how does your conduct, the way that you approach your day or your relationships or the, this present moment, um, impact your impact your capacity to be a conduit meaning what comes through you what your what you bring into the world what bring what you bring out of out of yourself back into the world and because i think a lot of the time people want to be conduits they want to have vision they want to have purpose they want to um to teach or to be an expert or but their and but their conduct's horrible. Mm. So a great example are politicians. Mm. You know, like they want to be they want to be leaders. That's the conduit part. They want to be leaders and role makers and and visionaries for the people. But their conduct, some of the time, for a lot of my, politicians in my country, is horrible. And, and it's because they're not seeing that there's a relationship between the way that they approach their lives or their workday or their, or their, or their um, colleagues or their constituents impacts or is a, it, it feeds what they are bringing into the world, right? So there's no relationship between the way that they approach their work or their relationships and what they're bringing in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so in just to bring it back a little bit to your question about ritual and how to distinguish it from a habit, it's all about your conduct. Mm. So how are you conducting yourself in the presence of that reminder on your phone? Mm. Is your conduct just like, Oh, Okay, I got to do this. Got to check it off. Okay, fine, done. Now I could finally get back to like Facebook <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, or really like how are you conducting yourselves in, I think that this is all about nuance. So how are you conducting yourself in the presence of a cashier in the grocery store? Yes, yes, yes. How are you conducting yes. yourself in the, when you're on hold with an airline and the operator comes on are you just suddenly wanting to get what you want, you know, and hurry it up? And, or are you realizing that this is a, you're in, you're in a relational conduit right now, right? What comes through you between you and the cashier, let's just say is directly impacted by the way you carry yourself. Yes. How you conduct yourself with your cashier, with the Mm. cashier, Mm. how they conduct themselves with you. Mm. So I've had moments where, you know, recently with a gas station attendant where I carried myself very differently than almost all of the customers that came before me. 
And what came, because I carried myself, because I was interested and curious and, and, um, and, and generous and grateful and all, all of these ways of conducting myself in their presence, their whole defense system started to melt. And suddenly they were realizing that they, that I was approaching them as a human <laughs> and they started to approach me back as a human. And I saw a little smile out of their face and a little extra bit of information and kind words were exchanged between us. And we both left feeling a little bit better about our day. Yeah. And that's the stuff that I talk about. I mean, that's, that's what I'm interested in when it comes to yoga. I could care less if you can do some fancy thing on your sticky mat, but if you just can be moment to moment, a more connected. Attuned. Which by the way, you know, not, to, not to take this too far, but oh, do it, you, do it. you, you you guys seem like a good group, so follow me here because I'm I'm clearly interested in on a word journey today. But <laughs> yeah. well, I I don't know. You know, I have my own yoga practice, but I I don't I'm not that, that deep in the philosophy of it. But I think I do know that the word yoga in Sanskrit means um, to be yoked, right? To to be bound. Yeah. Is that correct? Well, yeah, but connected to yeah yeah to to hook yourself up yeah. Okay. So you used a word which has the same meaning about five minutes ago, mm. but you used it in, a, I think, describing something you didn't want to be. Ooh. And so I'm going to just give you this word back as a gift. Okay. Okay. And the word is obligate. Oh, you're right. Because the word actually, it has that word, blug in it, obligate, and that shares the same root with the words religion and the words ligament, and, that, and they're referring to Connection. being bound, yes. temporarily connected. Yeah. yeah. So we have this negative mentality when it comes to obligate, but really the word is so beautiful yes, when right. you when you put down your own judgment your little boy or little girl judgment of it and you say like yeah i am obligated to the earth yeah yeah, yeah i am obligated to the land that i live on yeah I'm, i am obligated to my friends mm. and i am obligated to make some beauty today like mm. i'm not going to just wake up and take from this world i am obligated to give back mm. because i'm connected and bound yeah and so you know yeah um okay so i'm going to swing us off in a wildly different direction before we finish up <laughs> okay so uh, heads up um one of the things that people i talk i teach a lot about social media and why it's important in having a yoga business and and a lot of people say well i i don't um i don't want to be showy or I don't have anything to, why would people want to look at my stuff or who am I to presume that I've got something to share that, you know, I, I don't want to take up space. And as particularly in like Australian culture and I think culture in the UK, like no one wants to be showy or, you know, we have the tall poppy syndrome here. Don't be a wanker. What have you got that's so important? It's prevalent, that sort of attitude. And what I like to share with people is actually let what, let your social media platform be a way of being of service. Like, it's not about you showing off. It's about you offering something up with the intention that it may be in service to someone who receives it. 
And what I heard you say at the beginning was, in fact, that's how your work and your, what you're doing now actually sort of came into being and said it was sending these, obviously it was your own work <clears throat> journey, but then in, in sending them to other people and then sharing them on social media and just wanted to highlight the point that the story you shared before about someone telling you about the practice that she'd done with her friend and honoring the divorce. Actually, if you had an of said, here's something that I made that I'm giving up to, to putting on the altar, you wouldn't be at, then people wouldn't be able to receive that and use it in their own way. Could you talk a mm -hmm. little bit about what would you say to someone who's feeling like hesitancy and being brassy or, or putting themselves out there because they're worried about what people might think? I think now would be a, probably a good time for me to just acknowledge the impermanence aspect of my art. Mm. Um, that none of it's, none, I've built probably over a thousand altars mm. and none of them have remained mm. at all. Mm. Not one. I just have photographs, which are just, you know, a, a little snapshot, a little shell of a memory of a moment of that altar's life. Yeah. Um, and a beautiful, you know, that snapshot uh, is a beautiful representation of the height of how I ordered those pieces yes. right before the whole world had their way with them. And it was this middle, this little moment, because keep in mind, all of these, all of this forage material um, started in chaos, was ordered by me, and returned to chaos. Right. And so they're, it's ephemeral. It's changing. They're impermanent. They, they're not meant to last. And there's, I, the last chapter of my book is about the practice of letting go mm -hmm. um, and not trying to hold on to them. Now, it's not very different from your life. Mm. Mm. Your life is very much the same. You've, this is started in chaos. Believe me, I just spent the weekend with a bunch of five-month-olds. It's pretty chaotic. chaotic. <laughs> yeah. The, you, there's a cultivation in the life, right? Teenagers is really about... I've taught teenagers for almost 15 years. Oh. It's cultivation. It's discipline. It's, it's, and it's, it's deep inquiry. It's a lot of, of uh, examination and edge-walking. Mm. And as an adult, it's the capacity to cultivate ourselves, right? And, into being an elder. And then as we become an elder and I have a 92 year old grandmother who I speak to on the phone every day and she can, I can tell you, she, <laughs> she oftentimes jokes and sometimes complains about things going back to chaos. Uh, yeah. Her eyesight's going, she can't hear, she can hardly, you know, it's, things are going. Uh. And um, so I'm setting this up to just remind everyone that we're here temporarily. Now, with that information, if you realize that your life is no matter what you think or try to do is not meant to last, that you're here for a very short amount of time and that you come from people who have been here a very short amount of time, but they did enough that they got you here, that your ancestry, um, enough people worked together and there was enough health and enough food and enough safety and that the miracle of you being here happens. So you stand on the shoulders of all of these people who have come before you. Now, with all of that said, 
you have this one little burst of light in your life, right? And you know it's not going to last, you know? There's no guarantee of anything. Maybe it'll get passed on, maybe it won't. The question is not about, I don't want to be so brash. It doesn't become that anymore. The question really is, what is more of a Mary Oliver quote? What do you want to do with this one wild and precious life? Yeah. That's the question. Yeah. And that's your question to really, you know, and, and I like your framing of it, which is about service, yeah. you know, to, to serve something bigger than yourself, because how could you serve just yourself? I mean, you're here so temporarily. I mean, geological time, 80, 90 years is non-existent yeah yeah yeah. i just wrote i wrote the book in southern utah which if you've been to america utah it is the gorgeous. most beautiful place oh. in the world i think yeah yeah and, and i wrote that book down the street was dinosaur footprints in the mm. in the rocks and anastasi pictographs that were about a thousand years old on the walls mm. and you really get a sense of you know time let's mm. just say that you get a sense of time and, and you get a sense of like, oh, it hasn't always been this way, you know? So that helps. I think that re that perspective really helps to put us in our place. Yeah. It doesn't mean to put us in our place of like, you're nothing and worthless and we're unworthy. It actually means to put you in your place of you're here to bring something into the world. I'm not going to prescribe what that is. I'm trying to describe what that is which is the world needs certain things from you. You've been entrusted with a lineage. Some of us have been entrusted with talents and gifts. I can't define what that is for anyone. I have a very weird and wild one myself. <laughs> but you've been entrusted with it. And so the question becomes, what are you, how are you obligated to what you've been given? What is your responsibility towards that? How do you carry this thing that you've been given? Hmm. Um, you know, yes, it will serve you for sure. I mean, I'm doing this work in the world and it's serving my life. Absolutely. But the other question becomes who else is it meant to serve? And with anything like with anything that is alive, it lives, it lives better when it's free. It doesn't do well when it's just held for yourself. Mm. So you have to, in some way, eventually, I mean, you don't have to, plenty of people die with their gifts inside of them, but the better way to, um, to give back and to really, um, in some ways to, to, to proceed in this world, like you're here for a reason is to let the thing that's been living inside of you free to put it out into the river of life and to watch what it becomes and to realize like any parent would probably know this better than me, um, that you're, you're not really in control of your offspring and they go and live the wild and precious life that they live. And the best you can do is help shape them when you have the opportunity to do that and let it, let them go. And so, you know, so that's, that's our task here is to shape and let it go. 
so much of everything. Well, who am I kidding? Everything that you've um, shared with, with me this morning, like I know my mind is whirring and I'm in delight right now. So thank you for being so generous with your wisdom. Folks, you've got to obviously uh, at least go get this book. Morning Altars, a seven-step practice to nourish your spirit through nature, art, and ritual day. Thank you for being such a generous guest and uh, really Happy. inspiring all of us to to think about all sorts of things in different ways and and conduct ourselves in different ways as well. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed these interviews and you're interested in having my support as your yoga business coach, check out the information about my coaching package at amymcdonald.com.au forward slash coaching.